Uh, yup, it's TBK. Young kid, play some VLA. Yo, chick, dick, she feed me trays. Peaches in the chat, that's PDA. I'm so cray. See me slay. Fake n****s all day if they in my way. Got three stacks, like my name Andre. Competition can forget it, cause I'm in first place. But I ain't really keeping track when I run this race. My cleats be digging in the grass, don't bother giving chase. I'm on a path, you can fed them in a foreign land. You be frozen like you didn't go to eat your hungry man. Duality like light, particle and wave. Classical rap so nice, it's bound to be embraced. I'm just being me. Awkward your book face, Dr. Neil Tyson the music. Call me outer space. Hunt it on a dash, on a inner state. Welcome to another episode of Rockstar Violinist. I'm your host, Matt Bell. Like our last episode that featured a cellist, our guest this time is not a violinist. But we are sticking to our guns, not changing the name. Still Rockstar Violinist. If you're on Instagram and you play a string instrument, you probably know that viola kid. He's everywhere. Well, his real name is Drew Ford, and he's just as cool in person as he is on the gram, as he calls it. When I first started following Drew, he was almost purely focused on classical music and on graduating from Juilliard. But I've been around to witness a transformation, not away from classical music, but an expansion outward. Drew is still a fantastic classical violist and is working to further his career in that field. But what makes him a rock star violist is his, all his work in hip-hop, rap, and pop circles. He's really just getting started, but his excitement about crossing over is worth talking about. In fact, his single Duality, which we're listening to now, talks about a lot of the tension of living in two worlds at once. This episode is brought to you by Electric Violin Shop, the world's biggest name in electric strings. Located in Durham, North Carolina, with shipping all over the U.S. into 91 countries around the world, EVS is truly a global force in the amplified strain world. In fact, I've done editing work on this podcast in Canada, Italy, and France, and I'm recording these voiceovers in Sweden, all part of our efforts to familiarize ourselves with violin makers all over the world and to continually expand our knowledge base so you can be sure the advice we give is truly world-class. But enough of that. Let's get down to business. I hope you enjoy my chat with that viola kid, Drew Ford, rock star violist. But you know, it's it's incredibly freeing. I I, I, I every cruise I do, this, it was my second one. Uh, I lose a lot of weight. Because I go to the gym every day, I eat salads for the most part. <laughs> Sometimes I can't resist the cookies at night. <laughs> <laughs> but no, by and large, like I, I, it helps me recenter, refocus. But I only need a week to do that. I don't need, yeah, four months to to reset. You know. Yeah, and then you know, of course, so much of your career is based around the internet. Yeah. That being disconnected from that for a month is uh, not so good. Being disconnected from it, it, part of it's like the algorithms. You know what I mean, man? Like you, you know, if you don't post on Instagram for a day, and then you post the next day, it shows. It, it doesn't show it to as many people. Right. Um. Case in point, I didn't post in a few days. I posted a video yesterday, and. Uh, it was showing my video to a lot of people and then it decided to stop. 
mm. they decided to stop showing into it. You know, by by and large, whenever you post something on Instagram, uh, it will show it to maybe ten percent of your audience, right? Your, your total followers. Like it doesn't even show it to everybody anymore. Like that's it's really frustrating. Which gives them like Facebook is. Yeah, because guess who owns it? Yeah, when Facebook bought Instagram, I was like, oh, I don't know. And the, both of the CEOs who were there when it when it was founded have left. Okay. Mm-hmm. I know the personal pages on Facebook are still okay as far as what they serve stuff up to. But like your fan pages or like Electric Violin Shop page, we've got 20-some thousand followers Mm-hmm. And I'm happy if I can get a post out to a thousand people. Isn't that wild? Yeah. That's your audience. But also, it's your audience gained by Facebook, the platform. So, you know, without the platform, maybe you wouldn't have that audience. So sure. we kind of are beholden to them. Oh, but, no doubt. But, like, it makes me question, like, what is necessary to become platform proof? Um. Because all this hard work, let's say Facebook uh, gets subject to regulation or gets subject to, I mean, did you see the C, the for, uh, one of the co-founders of uh, Facebook, he wrote, a, he wrote a post recently saying that he believes that Facebook should be broken up. That it's too big. Wow. It has too much power. And so when you have one of your founders saying that, it's really interesting to see what people will do from here. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the track record of what's going on with our policy and big businesses, it tells it tells me that they won't touch it. But also, you know, when do you stop? Like Facebook is one of the most powerful companies in the world. It has incredible influence. You you see that, you know, other governments are using it to influence democratic elections. You know, it, it's 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 yeah, really no doubt. Uh, it's crazy. So, like, how how do you regulate for that? How do you fix that? You know, how do you keep it from dominating the world? Uh, yeah, well, you know, the bigger question for us is less a policy question, but like you were saying as an artist, how do I become platform proof? Mm-hmm. Now, you're one of the you're one of the guys for people who don't know, Drew, he's a big deal. Drew's a big celebrity. <laughs> I don't know about all that, man. Uh, but, I mean, I yeah, <laughs> frankly, when did all that start? Just maybe give people a little bit of a background. Yeah. Uh here, here's the deal. Uh, I, I started Instagram September 29th, 2013. That's my that's my birthday. All right. So every year my birthday comes around. That's the anniversary of the time I've been on Instagram. And so uh, 2013, I was a senior in college. Uh, I, I just bought my first smartphone. Uh, on my own dime, because you know how expensive those things are. I'm a college student. Indeed. I work in the uh, fitness center of my university center. So I'm like wiping up sweat puddles. I'm wiping down, <laughs> you know, I'm <laughs> checking out equipment and stuff, you know. Uh, and I'm graduating with the bachelor's of arts in, in, in viola performance. So essentially a useless piece of paper. So I'm like, man, I don't know. How am I going to make money? How am I gonna, you know, connect with people? How how do musicians make a living? Because I realized after four years of undergrad, I was never taught how to have a career. I was taught how to play viola, right. you know, which you know, 
might be a cool party trick, but at the end of the day, you know, you want to be able to sustain yourself and potentially a family in the future. So I was like, okay, I started studying, started reading books about entrepreneurship. Uh, I discovered this guy, um, named Gary Vaynerchuk and, uh, I saw him speak publicly and he changed my perspective. I was like, Whoa, uh, he's, he was saying one of the principal things I remember from that keynote speech that he gave in 2013 was that uh we are now media companies you know snapchat is gonna be big remember snapchat came out like 2010 2011 this is it's three years old you know it's only 10 year olds on it (laughs) and like college kids so i was only using snapchat for selfies and flirting with girls but he's like it's gonna be a big platform you know a few later a few years later uh, Zuckerberg is like offering Spiegel $3 billion for Snapchat and Spiegel's like, nah, I'm good. So Gary is very, he's one of those people who can really see what is happening and he reacts faster than most people. So I decided I wanted to be one of those people. I bought his book. Um, and of all the platforms I, I thought, and I, I, I resonated most with Instagram. And there's something special, especially in the early days of 15 seconds. Yeah. Uh, oh, just just the 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 cuteness yeah. <laughs> of, of Instagram. It's just it was so bite sized. It was so uh, pressureless. It's very different now. Um, it was a very different very different platform back then. So I started posting. Uh, after I saw Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, come January 2014, uh, I'm about to do my whole graduation audition thing. So I started this uh, – my graduate – sorry, not graduation audition, graduate school auditions. So audition for Eastman, Cleveland Institute of Music, and the Juilliard School, as well as uh, NEC, the New England Conservatory. So I was like, man, I want to get super nervous because like this is big. Grad school auditions are big. What if I started like promoting my senior recital so I can get as many people there uh, as possible? So I started a hashtag called Journey to Juilliard and called my recital the same thing. It was my first foray into marketing. I don't know. I still don't know a thing about marketing. But <laughs> but you know I, that hashtag kind of caught on a little bit. I started gaining a few followers, but because I I was doing something that only a couple people were doing. I was posting myself playing. Right. Uh, 15 second second clips of my playing online and there were a couple other people chloe trevor violin was doing it at the time she was she's like probably the first she's like one of the ogs uh a guy named john hannafin niles luther uh mark bassett a lot of these people were on these pl- on this platform before me so i would look at what they were doing and i was uh you know emulating them and trying to figure out how i could do it I was just super happy there weren't any other violists doing it. It's like, yes, I can be that viola good. Ah, he can definitely be that viola kid. Here's a quick clip from his first recital at Juilliard. This is the Voitam Capriccio. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
So uh, from then on, you know, it was just the consistency, uh, posting every day, really spending eight hours a day liking and commenting uh, on pictures and hashtags that I felt would like the content that I create. So it was it was a full time thing for me. The first thing I did when I woke up and the last thing I did before I went to sleep. Uh, for about three and a half years. And then that translated into very steady growth. Uh, it wasn't an explosion <laughs> like people right. uh, seem to think. It was pretty much, for a long time, a thousand followers a month. So pretty much 33 followers a day. Uh, yeah. I, I calculated it out. And that was just my goal. And I was just like, okay, so I need to do whatever it takes to get 33 followers a day. What do I do? And so. I, I did that compounded for a long time. And uh, before I knew it, I was at 100,000 100, at the end of or at, in May of like 2017 mm-hmm. at 100,000 followers. Uh, so that, that, was, that was the biggest milestone that I had. And uh, when I hit it, I was very happy. But then I, I also realized I hadn't made a plan uh, for when I got there. <laughs> I just wanted to like connect with people. But sure. now that I have the audience, I'm like, okay, so what do I do with it? <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's what well, I'm thinking. But I think is you got to dance with the one that brung you, right? I mean, the, the thing that interested people in you, you got to keep doing that. Mm-hmm. But also at the same time, uh, when you play classical music. So what I was doing at the time was just posting videos of me playing viola you know, playing classical music. But I realized that that audience is limited. That audience is only so big. And, you know, I'm not a competition winner. Uh, you know, I still don't have the recognition to where I could, like, sell out Carnegie Hall like a Josh Bell. Like, I'm still not there, and I don't think I ever will be. So I have to figure out how do I keep moving forward. Um, and, you know how many classical music lovers are, you know, I'm looking at my demographics. The majority of my following is, you know, it's, uh, 18 to 24 and yep. then 25 to 34. So uh, how many of these people are actually going to concerts? How many of these people are buying albums? How many people are actually doing those things? Not many. This is a new generation. They, they consume content in a different way. And, I have to, I've had to figure out, okay, what music are they listening to? What music do I like making that is mine? Because if I just play Beethoven covers for the rest of my life, like there's only so much money you can make playing other people's music. And so that's what the past couple of years have been about for me. How do I make my product, my music and slowly transition, not just from from classical music like i don't want to just be a classical violist it's so limited in my scope and capabilities and i want to i want to be more than that this is a collaboration with violinist albert chang better known on youtube as slightly musical it's a looping cover of shape of you by ed sheeran and has almost three quarters of a million views Thank you. 
absolutely. In fact, you've got some original material out now. Yeah, man. Yeah, talk about that, the journey in, in, in writing and discovering. I remember when you were first talking about um, making beats and we were we were chatting yeah. and you connected with guys from Black Violin and D-Sharp. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, talk about the journey from playing the page mm -hmm. to being a composer and a writer and a producer. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, it, I have to thank the boat for it. Because I think I was going slightly mad. My first contract back in the beginning of 2018. You know, after about a month at sea, you're like, okay, that was cool. Wait, what? I have three more? <laughs> you mean you mean I, I still have a hundred and I have I have like two hundred more shows to do? What 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 do you, what do you <laughs> so it was like that feeling. I was like, oh no. Like I, the people that I was working with were very difficult. Uh, a lot of people, the, the people that I was I was working with also didn't have the same passion for music. They didn't they didn't care about the getting better. And that's the thing is like when you're surrounded by people that don't want to get better and you have to play with them three times a day, three shows a day with people that really couldn't care less if they played better if they sounded good if they played in tune if they had good rhythm if they paid attention to what was going on during the performance and reacted in real time no people on autopilot yeah they're just clocking in and clocking out clocking in and clocking out and when you are forced to work with people like that uh it it, it kind of help it, it draws a bleak picture of what being a musician is <laughs> am i doing this for money because I'm not having fun. So it was like, okay, how can I have fun? How can I express myself? Because I'm obviously not being able to express myself in a way that makes me feel good. So then I was like, okay, uh, let's see what this whole hip hop thing is about. So I had some I, I bought some speakers uh, in Fort Lauderdale, some nice studio monitors. They're literally sitting right next to me right now. They're beautiful. They're beautiful. And uh, I started listening to albums, just going through the the hip-hop catalog. One of my friends, Tom McGovern, who was on the ship with me, he's a uh, singer, songwriter, pianist, comedian. He's brilliant, brilliant human. Uh, he bought me a book, and he gave it to me. And it's I have it down there. It's like a hip-hop yearbook. And it details from the beginning of hip-hop, the first year of hip-hop, uh, I think it's like he classifies it. His name is. Uh, let me get it real quick. Shea Serrano is the rap yearbook, and it goes from 1989, and it goes every year until what well, year? 2014. So from 1989 to 2014, and he details and writes about the his in his opinion the most important rap song of each year, and so uh, I got to be exposed to uh, the histories of uh, you know uh, Africa Bombada, you know uh, uh, Jay Z, uh, Kanye West, Tupac, Biggie, Dr. Dre. Uh, run DMC and a, a lot of other people that I just, you know, being a classical musician never was exposed to. Right. And so I listened to those albums and I made it my job to listen to two albums every single day of hip hop, just so I could get a feel for it, get, 
you know, a little, a sense of the history. And in doing so, I saw the nuance that people were talking about, the things that I saw in classical music, I started seeing in hip hop. I was like, oh, <laughs> this is fire. I'm pumped. And so I developed a love for hip hop. Like I've always loved hip hop, grew up listening to Outkast, but my scope was very tiny. I was opening my mind to it. And uh, yeah, that kind of changed everything. And I was like, okay, let me make some beats. I want to be a rapper. So let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> so as soon as I got off the ship, I uh, talked to a friend of mine that I met at a jazz club one day. He said he could possibly be a manager of mine, but he wanted me to meet one of his artists that he was managing. Uh, this guy's name is Jay Isaac. Uh, incredible. He's like 21. Super young. But incredibly talented. Uh, we hung out one day. He showed me some of his beats. I bought a couple of his beats. And one of those beats turned out to be Duality. Um, okay. He helped me write part of the first verse of Duality. I flew to Japan for a month. Uh, and out there, my friend Brian Lee uh, helped me record and shoot the video for it. And so when I, by the time I got back in August, you know, when I got on a ship in January, didn't know I wanted to be a rapper. By the time I was moving to L.A. at the end of August that same year, I'd already released my debut single as a, as a rapper. So it's just really interesting how life can pivot super quickly. <laughs> yeah, so um, we had a chance to hang out in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. And you got a chance to perform some rap in front of a room full of string teachers. Yeah, that was that was fascinating. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, the The one thing that I got, and the one thing that's super important about hip hop, is that you need to hear the words. Um, and if you don't, then it's just kind of like rhythmic talking. Right. <laughs> so a lot of people were like, "I think it sounded dope." but I couldn't hear what you were saying. <laughs> that, that was the biggest feedback that I got. So uh, not necessarily the, the best experiment ever, but uh, I released the song recently. Uh, it turned out to be Figure Eights of Heartbreak. I just released it about a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it seems people seem to be liking it. And a lot of people say they like it more than my first track. So at least I'm improving. Well, the thing is about producing and about writing and about rapping and about singing, it's like playing the viola, right? The more you do it, the better you're going to get. And the problem is, like, you got to understand you're going to have to release one of the early ones. Yeah. Out of this when it comes out. Mm -hmm. But 10 years from now, I expect to look back on this and be like, hey, well, I guess you got to start somewhere. Yeah, I already feel that way. I listen to duality and I like it. But I'm also like, oh, there's so much I could have known better. So, like, you're right. It's it's all about the reps. Like, I'm so glad Instagram didn't exist uh, 16 years ago when I started mm. playing viola. Man, everybody would be like, man, this kid's going to not amount to much. <laughs> but, you know, that's the thing. You got to kind of own it, too, right? You got you to gotta own those early steps. And be like, hey, it's a process. And and I think one of the things that people really relate to you on your Instagram page is how honest you were about the process of auditioning. And, you know, you were you were sort of showing awards and all this. This is what auditioning is like, guys. And it's you know, you, you've been really honest about some failures that you've had, too. 
Yeah, I, I still continue to be. Uh, I just auditioned for Laco. You know, you know about it. Remember, um, yeah. the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. I was working hard on it. Um, I didn't even get past the first round, man. You know, it's 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 kind of crazy. And I, I've been recently discussing uh, with friends because the thing is, is like when you graduate, you think everybody's way more successful than you. You really mm-hmm. do. Uh, you you look at social media, you see people playing these big gigs, but what people don't see is the four, five, six months of nothing, of 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 like teaching just to pay your rent, of ramen noodles, of uh, performing in the subways, uh, just the the things that aren't as glamorous. You know, you go from Alicia Keys to, you know, asking mom if you can, if she can help you uh, pay your car note this month. You know, it's really interesting. And so I, I think I felt like a failure for so much of my uh, quote, quote, career, <laughs> you know, since I graduated. Right. And so right. Uh, I felt some trepidation in sharing that because I think that what's crazy is like, yeah, I may have a lot of followers. But that doesn't mean dollars. That doesn't mean success. A lot of people feel it does. And so that guilt of not, quote, succeeding for people who follow me has been something I've been dealing with a lot. But I've recently just made the decision, no, I think it's super important because people I look up to, people that I think are incredible are struggling just like me. So why are we all acting super brave? Why are we doing that? Why don't we just be a little bit more honest? And so, uh, yeah, you know, I'm going to be auditioning for the Los Angeles Philharmonics, uh, their uh, their resident fellows program. I've got to submit a tape uh, Friday, you know, to even get past pre screening. So. We'll see, but if I get past the pre-screening, that's going to be a uh, journey in Juilliard 2.0, where it's just like go no to the grindstone and sharing that process with people. Because uh, my friend Nathan Chan in the Seattle Symphony, uh, one of the most incredible musicians that I've ever met, uh, and one of my best friends, I was talking to him about it. And he's like, "Yeah, man." <laughs> There's, I think financial stability out of school is super important. So that's why I'm thinking I'm going to just do the audition, the, do some orchestra for a little while, uh, do the orchestral uh, audition grind, something that I didn't really want to do because I love hip-hop, I love traveling, I love teaching, I love doing all these other things. But it's going to take a little bit longer for me to establish myself to make sure I can rely on that sure. as a sustainable model. And I look, I have student loans that i got to pay. This is a preview of one of my tunes the Drew guest stars on. It's a not-yet-released remake of a Frank Zappa tune. Drew does a great job of bringing classical, jazz, and hip-hop elements together to make a fantastic solo.
Well, you know Chuck Bontrager. You know, we got a chance yep. to hang out, and Chuck has yeah. been featured on this podcast. Love Chuck is know. a guy who's who's a brutal heavy metal violinist. But by brutal then, is a very kind word. He is a savage. He's an animal, and I look up to him so much. He's ah, crazy. Anyway, <laughs> during the day he's he's off playing the page. He's a uh, he's an orchestral guy. He plays for Hamilton. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So he's, you know, he's a guy who's, who's during the day, he's playing his Kusan acoustic violin mm-hmm. plugged into a DPA mic and, and doing the, or the, uh, the, the theater thing. Mm-hmm. And then at night he's got that seven string beast plugged into like six half stacks and he's rattling windows all across Chicago. <laughs> Wait, is he, he's on Chicago, Hamilton. I have a friend yeah. from Juilliard who's on it. Jimmy Jeter. Okay. He's one of the, he's he uh he's one of the characters in in the show. That's incredible. Yeah. Oh, that's why he knows him. No, we talked about this in Nam. That's why he knows him. Okay. Now it's all coming together. I was like, how do you know Jimmy? How do you know JJ? That's great, man. Yeah. So it's you know it's not just because you're taking a, an orchestral gig doesn't mean that that's the end of hip hop. Yeah. For sure. And and I I've been thinking about I've been thinking about a lot of things. When I'm not posting, I'm reading and I'm thinking. I'm very I'm a very pensive dude. And uh one thing I, I realize is like we we just aren't taught in school that you gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> you know? And they make us think that yeah, you're gonna all be successful, people are gonna love you, you're gonna go and you're gonna play your viola and chamber music and you can do all this stuff. And I think New York's just a really interesting bubble where people want to listen to chamber music since leaving there. Like I haven't really played a lot of chamber music and that's my one passion. And it's, it's a passion that the audience feels and they enjoy too. It's un it's remarkable, but it's so interesting. I'm having to build the demand for it outside. Like in New York, it's baked in, but outside of New York, People, most people that I meet, they're like, what's chamber music? I'm like, imagine a rock band, but acoustic. <laughs> right. And music written mostly by dead white guys. Like, But it's it's a it's a romp. You're going to have fun. And they're like, uh, actually, I, I'm going to go to Coachella. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay, I'm sorry. for your, Thank you for your time. So yeah, it, it that's been the biggest challenge for me is is finding uh finding a way to to tell the story. And it's gonna be harder than I thought. So talk a little bit maybe about how um music school has helped prepare you for life after music school and maybe some ways that music school didn't help you. Let me, music school really got me to be a sweaty violist. So I'm at a point in my life and I hope I, I can always keep getting better uh, and then it'll con- continue to grow and be more. But you can give me a sheet of music and I can play it. Like mostly anything, anything outside the realm of aleatoric uh, or 12 tone, I can read it. I can read it pretty easily. Um, and if I can't immediately give me 15 minutes and I'll, I'll be able to play the viol part and we'll be good. Barring Don Juan, you know, really heavy Strauss, really heavy. I'm held in Laban or Don Quixote or Don Juan or anything like that. Uh, I can, I can play it. So 
when it comes to recording, when it comes to going to studios, uh, they're like, okay, let's know if you need a moment to look at this. No, I never do. Like, I can get it on the first or second take. I can phrase. I can read music really well. That is the biggest skill that I gained from uh, going to school. And that's about it. <laughs> you know, like, when it comes to, like, understanding music, music theory, musicianship, having a good ear. Yes, that comes into play as well. I can analyze music intervalically. I'm working on analyzing music quarterly. I'm trying to learn jazz theory. So beyond, I'm learning things beyond school now. And that, that I'm trying to fill the the gaps, the the holes in, in, my, in my knowledge. But beyond that, like, they didn't emphasize how to build a brand. They didn't ever tell you okay, so you're a violist, now what? Because there are thousands of them. How are you going to stand out? In marketing, if you are in, if you are, we're competing. If you're a violinist, you're competing with every other violinist in existence. And there are just too many of them for everybody to make money and to be recognizable. You need to be, oh, the violin guy that bites the head off of rats. (laughs) Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? You've got to be the violinist that has the long hair and flips it around in a circle when he plays. Or you've got to be the violinist that <laughs> is a dog My whistle. Dog tripping out. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, how are people going to even have a value proposition to come see you if they can just go and watch YouTube and see lots of violinists? Right. You know, so they don't tell you that. They just say, okay, you can go find an orchestra now, but there are thousands of you, and uh, there are three spots in an orchestra at any given time. Good luck. It's 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 disingenuous, and it's it. If kids knew that in order to be successful, they needed to figure out a way to be unique and to bring their art to the forefront, there'd be a lot. There'd be more musicians making money. And I think that our infrastructure would be even more robust. People would get it. But so do you think part of the part of the problem is in the education and that we're creating, we're trying to create a thousand violinists that all sound the same? One hundred percent. Like look at competition culture. Like I still have kids who are like 18, they're DMing me. So like, so when are you gonna join an orchestra? Or when are you gonna do a competition? Or when are you gonna do that? And that just tells me that they're being fed that bread and butter win Queen Elizabeth, and then you may have a career as a soloist. Like Most of these kids think they're going to be soloists. But how can you be a soloist when orchestras are going on strike, when they're cutting benefits and pay and the size of the orchestra, when the audience sizes are dwindling? So who are you going to play for when you go to the orchestra? Right. So I think there's a systemic problem that we need to fix, which is a uh, general... general audience building for classical music in to, at, at large by law at large you know what i mean and I, if i had the answer i'd be a millionaire right but i don't <laughs> but i have ideas and i think it starts with social media it starts with storytelling it starts with getting people invested in the people who wrote the music and then furthermore in each city and with each orchestra it then continues with getting people to be invested in the musicians on stage because 
how how often do you want to pay money to go see people you don't have any connection to? People go to concerts and pay money for people. There's a reason why people will pay $750 for a Kanye West ticket, and they're unwilling to pay $15 to go see their local symphony. Yeah. And it's because they don't know anybody there. They don't have any skin in the game. They don't they don't have a relationship with them. And then they don't know the composers. They don't know the importance of the music. So there's all these different these disconnects that don't that disincentivize people to take their hard-earned cash and throw it there. And then when they go, they have to be quiet and it has to be dark and they have to dress up. And if they cough, people are shushing them and they're judging them. And you know, it, it, there's a lot of baggage that that we have as a culture uh, of classical music. And then even the musicians themselves are like, oh, we have to play Star Wars. Or it looks like we're playing Indiana Jones again this week. You know, it's there's just the musicians aren't happy about it. The audience, when the audience is happy, the musicians aren't, and vice versa. So there, we have to find a way to uh, fix that <laughs> because yeah, if the musicians sure. can be happy, then the audience will. If the musicians can be happy making stuff, that the audience is happy happy to consume. That's when you're going to see that golden medium. That's when you're going to see that yeah. beauty. That And then they, the musicians are going to want to go and talk to the people afterward. And they're going to want to build those relationships. And they're going to want to, you know, you know, bring their students to the concert and all that stuff. And they're going to get students. So I think it could really I, – I just don't know how to do it. I don't know if it is more community engagement. I don't know if it is more pops concerts. Uh I have a sneaking suspicion that it is, you know, taking the Leonard Bernstein approach uh, uh, or, or, or taking the Bill Nye, Neil deGrasse Tyson approach where you have a few select influencers devote their lives to being communicators. And then through them, you start building, I don't know, you start building a baseline because you go in a classical music concert, if you don't have a baseline understanding of it, it's not as enjoyable. Yeah. They, they need tools. They need tools. So I think that for me, I'm trying to model myself after, you know, the great science communicators uh, as a music communicator. And one day I want to be able to say that, you know, maybe people understand why hip hop's important because of the content I've done over the past 50 years. And people also see the equal value and equal merit of classical music and country and jazz and blues, you know, I, I, but I don't know how to do it. I'm figuring it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, there were a couple of things. That, um, one, you were talking about the uh, how um, the commoditization of, of players. Mm-hmm. I saw an interview with Hans Zimmer. He was talking about Tina Guo, the, the cellist yeah. who lives there in mm-hmm. L.A. Yeah. And he was saying that, you know, it's I don't want a cellist. I want Tina. Because yeah. she has a thing that other cellists don't have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like string music is not it's not like string instruments are not common in hip hop music. You go all the way back to Mary Benary. Mm-hmm. There's There's been strings in, in hip hop since the very early days. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. You look at a mm-hmm. shifting demographic in the U.S., right? I mean, you look at your typical orchestra crowd, and mm-hmm. you see one kind of face out there. Mm-hmm. And I think you're starting to get to where you see in the orchestras the the musicians themselves are becoming a lot more diverse than the audience is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and how do we 
you know, not just from a racial standpoint, but from an age standpoint and a background mm-hmm. standpoint, mm-hmm. they're still playing to that one very specific demographic. And think about that demographic. I, I, I've, I've, I've talked about this a little bit publicly, but think about that demographic. They're what? 60, 70. And so what we got, we got to trace it back. What were those people doing? What were those people? How, when, when, when did, how, how did they like classical music? How did they learn about it? These are the same people that saw Leonard Bernstein on the television in the, in the forties and fifties, the young people's concerts where he had, where, where, where he created television uh, programs with the New York Philharmonic and New York Philharmonic was America's orchestra. And he was talking about concepts like what is music? Why, what, what is music about? And, and, and you can go watch some of these on YouTube and look at the young faces Mm-hmm. And then think about okay, if they were that young in the forties, how old are they now? Yeah, they're old. Those are the patrons, right? So, but we haven't had anything like that since then. We haven't had a Bill Nye the Science Guy show for classical music. We haven't had this. We haven't had, you know, a we're starting to get podcasts for classical music, but we don't have people really breaking it down in entertaining ways on a at scale like Leonard Bernstein did. And I think that's why we're seeing, uh, that's why the demographics look like that because that the last time that that was done, it brought in that audience. And so since then it really, we have, we didn't really transition in television beyond that. Like we had Mozart in the jungle recently, but like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, you <laughs> you know? need another rock star. Yeah, you need an, you need another person to really on a public stage uh, talk about it in a way that doesn't make it feel antiquated, in a way that people can really identify and be like, oh yeah, no, like um, that Beethoven being suicidal, like yeah, I, I feel that. Man, this dude couldn't even hear. Like he couldn't hear from his twenties on, and he still wrote music. Bar son. Yeah. wild you know but but that that story's just not being told so i i, I want to give the composers a uh i want to give them a chance and i think that the biggest difference is is that it's just not the knowledge isn't scaffolded and it's not compared and contrasted to stuff that people are familiar with right now and that's a way, that's why people don't identify with it you know Here's a clip from another of Drew's singles called Figure Eights of Heartbreak. This is the tune that Drew, Ross Holmes, Jason Anik, and I did an acoustic version of at the Asta Convention in Albuquerque. I guess that's just the price I have to pay I never understood the tears in your eyes They were like frozen snowflakes tumbling all through the night My terror scene was just for you, you listened to it right The enemy for you was real, but now we're out of time Cause I'm Here to talk about your faults See way back when we could have had it all 
A dumb shark love was not enough Many things I should've done So you always knew that you were the one Should've told you that I loved you every day For romantic every way Proposals to make you quake Fireworks over the lake Midnight trips to stake and shake Leaving you was a mistake All forever cherished Portland, Maine On again, off again Back and forth infinity Figure eights of heartbreak Drove me to insanity Wasn't right for many years Not a single fling Even started saving green So I could get a decent ring But that was many years ago It doesn't matter now I look back at what we had And can't help but to smile Love and miss your mom and dad Tell them I said hey I'll always put a piece of you In every note I play Cause Now do we think this is A uniquely American issue? Do you find that Audiences in Europe and Asia Do connect a little bit better? I mean look at guys like David Garrett Who's mm -hmm. drawn huge crowds mm -hmm. And uh, you know guys like Hans Zimmer who's drawing huge crowds he's not he's not playing classical music he's playing his music but he's yeah. they're filling stadiums mm -hmm. you also think about what else they're doing though like remember what I said like you have to make it fun and entertaining and they do and and much to the chagrin of a lot of classical music purists uh, they they're like man there's no substance they're just playing to the crowd they're doing the, they're just being they're showing off yeah they have all they have they're sellouts they're sellouts right no they they figured out how to market themselves and they have their own niche and they're they're crushing it and you're you're mad you're mad for Lindsay Sterling's the Taylor Davis's the two cellos and the piano guys of the world because they figured it out how am I different from other people oh. That's why, okay, let's do it. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? And let's keep going. Well, Trans Siberian um, is another example here in the US. Mm -hmm. You know, they're trying, they got more semis full of gear than they do instruments. <laughs> to answer your question, uh, in Europe, I, I think that it's a, they have a home field advantage. Like classical music has never been native to America. Like it took us forever to get Aaron Copeland to get right. an actual American composer. It took us forever to get Bernstein. And now that we have them, that's great. We had Gershwin too, but those people were influenced by jazz. Those people were influenced by an American music. It wasn't really classical music. Like they kind of fused it. Right. They, they like made a classical music mixtape with jazz, blues, and bluegrass. Like the music that was first inherent to uh, the people of America. In Europe, you have Dvorak, who wrote Czech. Uh, he had took Czech folk songs and put those themes in his symphonies. They have a home field advantage. So, like, it's baked in their culture in a way that, you know, uh, it isn't in America. And I think that's why they have a little bit of an advantage. But even then, you know, you have EDM that's way bigger than classical music. You have other genres that are blowing up. The culture is changing. But classical music isn't changing with it. And historically, when you see a genre refuse to change with the times, that genre stops that stops being being relevant. Um, oh, sure. hip, that's why hip-hop is... Probably is one of the most robust genres of our time because it the essence of hip-hop is sampling taking other genres and bringing it into the fold and that's what makes you dope you you have jazz coming into hip-hop you have blues coming into hip-hop you have soul you have funk with old time road you have country coming into hip-hop hip-hop is genre is 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 non-biased to genre if it sounds fly I don't care where it came from. Just just make sure you have bars and the beat is tough, right? 
So I'm like, yeah, maybe we can save classical music if I just bring some classical music into it. Well, yeah. look at uh, look at what Black Violin is doing. Yeah, exactly. Those guys are blowing up. Yeah, but they've been at it for a long time. It's it takes people a while to catch on to good ideas sometimes, right? Yeah. So I I don't know. I think that if if we're able to use classical music in hip hop, uh, classical music will be immortalized, and it'll be it will always have source material, right? Source yeah. material. If you can continue to keep revitalizing your new art with source material from the old it'll never die but we have to be we have to be cognizant of the fact that attention spans are shorter that people don't want to sit down for three hours anymore to watch an opera by in general and there's people nothing sit wrong down with three that. hours to watch a rock show yeah Unless i mean people complained crazy. about in, com- complain about Endgame, Avengers Endgame, and that was three hours. Yeah. They were like, man, that was long. Though. It was good, but man, it could have been shorter. I'm like, dang, man. Even movies. Big blockbuster, record-breaking movies, people are like, that's too long. We're, right. we're realizing our time is, our, is, is the most valuable commodity that we have in this world. So, let's figure out how to abbreviate classical music a little bit and still give it to people. That's right. That that new chamber music tune is gonna have to clock in at three minutes and fifteen seconds. <laughs> well, yeah, in a way, I don't know how it will. Yeah, like there's some composers out there that are writing uh, one minute compositions, and I think that's dope. Just for Instagram, that's that's brilliant. Why not? Yeah. Why not? So. Cool. So, hey, man, what's uh, what's next for you? What's coming up? Um. So the, I got a couple auditions coming up, but I'm working on some new music. So uh, I'm trying to get my Spotify numbers up. I'm trying to really uh, take take my brand to the next level and not just be a violist, but be an actual musical artist. And uh, eventually, hopefully by 2020, be doing some shows, have a mixtape and, 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 and do some shows uh, in the summer. And awesome. my my goal my goal in the future is to a big goal would be to be signed by Dreamville uh, oh. under J Cole with those musicians so I can continue to learn because those guys understand hip hop on a level that I still don't understand and I think you know it's hard to learn a craft by yourself in a vacuum it's much better when you have mentors when you have colleagues when you have people that you look up to no doubt. uh it, it, working with them having feedback uh and just being a part of the culture so that's a big dream of mine dreamville but aside from that uh i'm gonna stay independent like i'm not i'm not thirsty to be signed uh i want to create the music that i think is great and uh, I want to continue learning and meeting, meeting new people and being inspired, ever inspired. Yeah. Yeah, man. So I, I don't know. I don't have any c- concrete plans. It's we're in the, we're in the, the, we're in the laboratory phase, if you will. <laughs> well, if people don't know how to find you. I really don't have a lot of help for them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, tell people where, where is Drew to be found these days? Uh, I'm. You can find me anywhere: Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Spotify. You can find me everywhere. That Viola Kid, Facebook. Find me. Look for me. Uh, give me a shout. As well as you know, I'm dropping a podcast called the Faking Notes Podcast, where this wonderful human, Matt Bell, will be featured as well. <laughs> you. 
<laughs> we're just weird being on the other side of the microphone, you know? Right? Isn't it? It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. But it's uh, the Faking News podcast is a is a podcast that's uh, pretty much a lo- co-hosted with my friend Trevor Bumgarner, who's a Juilliard composer, and we just kind of it's a comedy podcast. So we're just riffing off of each other. We're talking about what it's like to be a musician at the beginning of the career or the pitfalls, uh, pop culture. Uh, and everything in between. So definitely check that out. It'll be and dropping. Definitely changes. reach out to Drew, guys. I know he's he's got a lot of followers across platforms. We're talking about a couple hundred thousand people. So he's you know just from a logistics standpoint, he can't reply to every DM he gets because it's probably what a hundred a day. No, it's 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 manageable. It's about thirty. Uh, it's about thirty a day, uh, and I I really prioritize that. Um, and it's something that I want to get back to. Uh, I used to spend four hours answering comments every day. That that was part of the job. Yeah. Uh, and I want to want to get back to it because I learned the most from my audience. You know. So. But reach shout out. out. Shout if you got out. stuff to say to Drew, he's he's an accessible guy. He and I actually met through social media and, and yes, become friends in real life past that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Reach out to him and. Uh, Buy, buy, buy. Buy the same, buy the album, stream it, do whatever. <laughs> Just send them five bucks in the mail, whatever. Yes, I'm a Venmo. Uh, is that <laughs> cash forward with anything? <laughs> but anyway, Matt, thank you so much for having me, man. It's always great conversating with you. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> so that's our interview with that viola kid, Drew Ford. Be sure to follow him on Instagram and subscribe to him on YouTube. He creates a ton of super high quality content and gives some very honest and transparent looks into his life as a classical and not so classical violist, producer, and rapper. And as always, stay tuned for more awesome interviews with even more rock star violinists. Mm-hmm.